Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Glenn Leitner. And I'm Linda Leitner. The Bloomington Farmers Market saw record attendance last year, despite having fewer participating vendors. That's according to Kathy Aiken, chair of the Farmers Market Advisory Council. In a report to the Bloomington Park Board last week, Aiken also said some customers are complaining about parking availability. There are still complaints about parking meters, and some customers are still upset that the Johnson Creamery lot is no longer available. There are available lots at Solution Tree, at CFC, the county lot, and IUEMS lot, as well as the parking garage. All lots are within one block of the market, and quarter-page parking maps are available at the information table. Park Commissioner Les Coyne discussed the parking issue with Aiken and Farmer's Market Coordinator Marsha Veldman. I think that's something that we really have to give a close look at as we go into next year. Do you and the committee think that that's a possible reason why you saw a bit of a dip last year? It could easily contribute slightly. Yeah. But it's still such a vibrant market and I, I personally feel it's something that will kind of ebb and flow okay. with that's, people. That's that, not unreasonable. I mean, if you, you know, I have friends that say, you know, I've stopped going because there's nowhere to park. And I'm just, you know, have you tried varying your times? Have you tried a little earlier? Have you tried a little later? Uh, have you gone around a different block, you know? Well, we're, we're all spoiled. We always like to park within yeah. a short distance of right. where we want to go. Right. And it is, is you know, it is yeah. possible the vendors are helpful. They'll... You know, they can hold things for you. You can pull your car close and run and pick your things up. And, and the wonderful baskets that we can borrow. Sure. Yeah. You know, you can wheel those to your car, bring them back. Um, there are solutions to it if people just will be open to them. Just for the purposes of clarification, we actually did have record customer attendance last year. So um, overall, attendance grew mm -hmm. and was a record year. Aiken also reported the Advisory Council fielded a request to change the fee charge nonprofits tabling at the market. They asked that either a reduced fee or no fee was uh, available for organizations that are working in the public interest or nonprofit area. Currently, groups consist of commercial, for-profit, as well as political, governmental, educational, and nonprofit. Many of the nonprofits have very small budgets and are volunteer run. The current rate of $350 a season or $10 a day is high for some groups. After much discussion, the advisory council agreed to not move forward with a change. Aiken said the advisory council 
has also discussed a request by prepared food vendors to change their fees. Currently, those vendors are charged a weekly $10 flat fee plus 10% of their gross sales for that week. She said the council recommends removing the flat fee and collecting only on the gross sales. Lawmakers from Indiana cut the ribbon, officially opening Indiana Dunes National Park on Monday. U.S. Senator for Indiana Todd Young joined Governor Eric Holcomb, Congressman Pete Visklosky, and Gary Mayor Karen Freeman Wilson to open the state's first and only national park. The Dunes National Lakeshore has long been a tourist attraction and summer destination for Chicagoans and upstate residents, but only recently became America's newest national park earlier this year. Democratic Congressman Visklosky and Republican Senator Young added the measure to the federal omnibus spending bill during the federal government shutdown earlier this year. Efforts to add the dunes to the list of national parks goes back over 100 years, but the reliance on Gary's steel industry curtailed those plans during the First World War. Monday's ribbon-cutting ceremony officially opens the national park. Cover crops are growing in popularity in Indiana. Cover cropping entails planting in the off-season to help protect soil from erosion and reduce nutrient runoff. From 2015 to 17, Indiana added 83,000 acres of cover crops. This was mostly mainly small grains and legumes and made for a 10% increase from previous totals. Fewer than 8% of all corn and soybean acres in Indiana are protected by cover crops. The Census of Agriculture ranked Indiana third among states for planted cover crops in 2017. Cost sharing and crop incentives can help offset the cost of planting cover crops. Farmers already using cover crops understand that they're a long-term investment. Cover crops planted in the fall of 2017 prevented nearly 3 million pounds of nitrogen, 1.4 million pounds of phosphorus, and about 1 million tons of sediment from entering Indiana's waterways. Climate is a major concern for American voters, with nearly 40% reporting the issue will help determine how they cast their ballots in the upcoming presidential election. This is according to a report compiled by the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. The report surveyed over 1,000 registered voters on global warming, climate, and energy policies. 40% said that a candidate's position on climate change is, quote, very important, unquote, when it comes to determining who will win their vote. Overall, Democratic candidates are under more pressure to provide green solutions of as part of their campaign promises, with 54% of Democratic voters saying they prioritize the issue in comparison with just 34% of independents and 12% of Republicans. For WFHB, I'm Glenn Leitner. And I'm Linda Leitner. Support for EcoReport comes from Blooming Foods Market in Delhi, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976 offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market in Delhi on East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. Now it's time for the secret life of fungi. Plastics simply do not biodegrade well. And number six, polystyrene, 
the white foam takeout food containers, and the packaging material used to cushion products during shipping, it's the worst. Thankfully, innovators have developed better solutions for the 21st century. I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower, and I'll describe how mushrooms are replacing the scourge of polystyrene in this segment of The Secret Life of Fungi. Plastic materials are most often made in a petrochemical process, harmful at extraction, during manufacturing, and long after disposal. While some plastics can be reused or recycled, some cannot. And all those single-use food containers meant to be disposable end up in the garbage, or worse, blowing in the wind. Used plastic breaks up into tiny pieces, but it doesn't readily decompose. Researchers have found microscopic plastic particles all over the world, on mountain ranges, the Rockies, the Pyrenees. Plastic particles are in every ocean, inside sea life, from single-cell zooplankton to the bellies of great blue whales. And back to the scourge of polystyrene, sometimes called by a trademark name of styrofoam, there's no economic incentive to recycle number six. Many recycling centers won't take it. And when it's contaminated with food residue, the only destination is the trash can. The volume by weight is minimal, but measured by size, as much as 30% of a landfill is polystyrene. And buried in the dark, it lays intact hundreds, possibly thousands of years. Think of all the white, foamy packaging coming out of a single big box store, and you start to grasp the scale of the problem. One way humankind can eliminate the plastics made from fossil fuels is to use alternatives that are naturally biodegradable. The innovative field of bioplastics explores the use of a variety of naturally biodegradable materials. For example, milk protein and clay are combined to make the water-soluble plastic film bubbles that hold powdered detergent. I used one to wash my dishes this morning. Cornstarch and wheat can be extruded into packing peanuts. However, this alternative is heavier than the polystyrene they are intended to replace, so are often rejected by manufacturers and consumers. The best alternative to the ubiquitous polystyrene is mycofoam, as in myco, Greek for mushrooms, rulers of the fungi kingdom. Designers and manufacturers of mycofoam packaging use agricultural byproducts like wood chips or corn husks as a growing medium and inoculate the medium with mycelium, the root-like structure of mushrooms. As the mycelium runs through the medium seeking nourishment, the composite grows firm inside custom molds. In two to five days, depending on the density required, the mycofoam is heated to end the growth period. So you'll never see or eat any mushrooms sprouting from these kinds of packaging materials. You will find products from IKEA, Dell Computers, and a growing number of companies looking for high-performing solutions. Mycofoam is lightweight, malleable, and cost-competitive. Best of all, after you've unpacked your product, you add your package into your garden compost. Within a couple of weeks, it's part of your living soil. As living system technologies spread, there's no excuse for anyone to use packaging materials that are harming our biosphere. I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower for The Secret Life of Fungi here on EcoReport. In today's feature report, 
WFHB correspondent Norm Holy continues his discussion with Renewable Power's Jackson Keith and Jonathan Kopp about wind power and wind development in Indiana. This is Norm Holy for WFHB, and today I am interviewing two gentlemen from Renewable Powers, a wind turbine group, and they have extensive experience in the U.S., not, not only in Indiana, but many other states in the U.S., and so we're going to talk about some of the basics of wind power today. Thank you very much, Dr. Holly. So my name is Jackson Keith. I am the field operations director for the state of Indiana here. Um, we work on wind and solar energy development issues and local zoning ordinances across the state of Indiana. Um, joined with me here today is Jonathan Kopp. Um, he is our field operations associate. A lot of what we see is people clinging to the fact that they just don't want them in their backyard. A lot of this issue has for a long time been about, you know, clean and renewable and, and combating climate change, but really in in parts of Indiana that necessarily isn't the best message because those people don't see those effects as someone from, let's say, San Francisco or Los Angeles, Miami, New York, those big cities, they're seeing a lot more of the effect of that, whereas people in, you know, northwest, south-central Indiana aren't really dealing with. So it's a lot easier for them to bring up things like bird deaths or safe setbacks or noise limits, shadow flicker, infrared, you know, these are all sounds and, and things that we hear out in the community that are very easily refutable. So tell me about the cancer issue that our president uh -huh. has brought up. Yeah, that's a good one. I, and look, I am, a, I am a Republican. I voted Republican. Jonathan has as well. We're conservatives by nature. But quite frankly, I, watching those speeches and, and how that got tossed in, I just yeah. I don't. other Republicans like <laughs> Senator Joni Erst of Iowa, she said it's ridiculous. The Senate pro tempore, uh, Chuck Grassley, who's also a Republican, said it's idiotic. There's no link towards cancer at all. They, they can annoy you by looking at them. They might make some sort of noise, but they're not causing cancer. There's no scientific evidence of that at all. And we've got um, a whole host of, of peer-reviewed articles here. I've got seven or eight in front of me about that issue specifically, but I think it's just one of those things, you know, you hear for decades, it's always the new technology. You know, you heard microwaves cause cancer. You got cell phones causing cancer. You've got now wind and solar panels are causing cancer. So it's, it's a very interesting narrative, and I think that he uses it to play to his base, which he is comprised of traditional blue-collar working people in the Rust Belt here. But uh, I think that's very easy to poke holes in. Okay, so then to a more interesting, I think, comment is that wind turbines kill birds, and uh, so I'd like and bats also. So bat, the bat issue is pretty important in Indiana. So can you speak to bird deaths? These projects they do kill some birds, but compared to literally everything else, it's just a fraction. Like fossil fuels. They kill like 24, almost 24 million birds per year, and wind energy kills under 50,000. While feral cats, they kill 87,000 times more 
per year of birds than wind turbines do. They kill 10 million per day while wind turbines kill about 50,000 per year. So it, it, while they do, like there's obviously any form of energy, there's going to be externalities to them all. But wind turbines seem to have the least externalities by a lot, especially compared to the fossil fuels that are killing them. And if you're worried about birds, we should round up the cats instead of <laughs> stopping wind development. Got my numbers pulled up here. It's one to two birds, migratory small birds per megawatt per turbine. So you're talking roughly for a project that had 130 something turbines in it, you'd be talking four to 500 migratory bird deaths a year, which may sound like a big number, but in the grand scheme of things, when there's you know billions of birds, that's not that much. And and it's mainly the ones who <laughs> have changed their flight paths and their flight paths have now entered into a project area where these things are, are brand new. I mean, you never see outside of a year where there's those sort of numbers. So let me ask one final question here, and that is what would you like to convey to our listeners in terms of important issues for wind power? One of the biggest things that I'd like to convey is that this, this is a community involvement issue nationally, you hear a lot of buzz about this issue. You've got the Green New Deal. You've got other groups trying to come up with ways to combat climate change. But when it comes down to it, in each of these, you know, you see other states making 100% renewable goals. And the way I look at it, and it might be different than other people, but the way I look at it is when I see that another state implemented a 100% renewable goal, I think, okay, where are they going to put all that? Um, now, Indiana is, is interesting because there is no renewable portfolio standard that says you have to have X percent of generation come from renewable sources. But um, up in Michigan, where I am originally from, that was a big deal. Um, in 2016, we passed a revamp of our energy law and put in a renewable portfolio standard that said 15% of all generation must come from renewable resources. Now, when they actually went out into the communities and the rural areas where these things are most likely to be put up, these utility-scale wind and solar projects, they found a lot of backlash from people saying, hey, the state isn't going to tell me what I've got to put on my property. So then the narrative kind of changed where, okay, if you want one of these on your property, here's the benefits that it will not only give to you but to the community. So that allowed for you to build a coalition within these communities that helped actually get steel in the ground to build these projects and then looking at it from a macro level, the impacts that it, you know, dilutes or, or takes away or, or sets the bar level on are so much greater than Joe's farm, for example. So the message that I would like to relay to to the listeners here and, and anyone that listens to this is that get involved um, if one of these projects is coming near your community or, or even within a, a quick 20-minute drive, go over there. Go over to the county commission meetings, um, the planning commission. They hold public meetings on all of these things, and they hear from everybody. So you, you have the ability, you know, and that's one of the reasons why this country is great is, you know, you can look up your own information. You can form your own opinion. So go and and use the voice and spread it at these uh, these local meetings if it's something that you feel strongly about. And feel free to reach out to us. We're here to uh, to answer any questions. 
We have a website, Renewable Powers, and spelled with a Z. So you just go ahead and type renewablepowers.com into your search bar, and uh, you can read through our stuff. And uh, there's a little contact sheet there, too, if you're interested in helping out. I'm more than happy to have you on board. I have one more thing, Dr. Holly, if I could touch on it. It wasn't brought up um, during the course of this, but property values is one thing that is very talked about by the opposition. We hear people all the time say, okay, well, if one of these projects comes into this community, we're not going to be able to move because we're going to lose like $70,000 on our home. That is just flat out not true. And actually, a lot of people believe that because they don't think that other people, they think other people are going to think like them and that they're not going to want to live by these giant things in their backyard. But a lot of the peer-reviewed studies that we have, and, and I'm more than happy to share these, they were conducted by independent consultants, not by energy companies or, or our group, um, that show property values actually go up. And whether that's a tribute to the housing market or to the increased value of the community from the turbines coming in, you end up getting better schools, more money for them, more money for roads, and more money for general services like police and fire. So those are things that attract a lot of people where you don't have as big of millages on your property, your taxes, and those start to go down while you get increased services. So some people like that. Some people like to complain that the property values are going to go down. But what we saw over in White County, Indiana, was that there were people who moved out at the beginning of the Meadow Creek project who have now actually ended up making money on their home when they sold it. So over the course of the last, you know, five to ten years or so, property values have, have fluctuated, but bringing these turbines in is not a direct correlation to losing property value. Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now it's time for In Nature. This is In Nature. Hummingbirds are among the smallest of birds, three to five inches long and in weighing as little as a penny. They have the highest metabolism of all animals except for insects. They are capable of hovering, which is easily seen at a feeder or when they slip their long, needle-like bills into the throats of flowers. The sugars they eat powers up to 100% of their metabolic needs. Hummingbirds go into torpor during the night when they cannot refuel. This behavior prevents energy reserves from falling to critical levels. In torpor, body temperatures fall and breathing and heart rates are slowed. The hummingbird 
suffers a 10% weight loss each night. It is hard to imagine how these tiny birds could possibly migrate the distances they do. Our own ruby-throated hummingbird migrates over 500 miles of open water in the Gulf of Mexico. In order to do this, they must boost their body weight by 100%. Fall is the time to keep your hummingbird feeders filled. No red coloring, only four parts of boiled water to one part sugar. Bon voyage, little traveler. You've been listening to In Nature, a production of WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. There will be an opportunity to volunteer for an invasive control workday on Saturday, June 1st. It will run from 1 to 4 p.m. at Crestmont Park and remove miscellaneous invasive species. Meet at the 16th and Monroe Street Shelter. Register with Joanna Sparks at sparkj at bloomington.in.gov or call 812-349-3497. A Summer Growers Fest will be held at Gold Leaf Hydroponics on Saturday, June 1st from 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. Gold Leaf Hydroponics is located at 58 1 South Production Drive, Suite B in Bloomington. Meet over 20 vendors and learn how to grow indoors organically. You can also ask the experts about grow lights, fertilizers, and more. Call 812 812- for more information. Do you want to work on your flora identification skills? Take advantage of the Flora Field Day at the Salt Creek State Recreation Area. The class will be on Tuesday, June 4th from 9.30 to 11.30 a.m. Field Day emphasis is on the use and application of an ID key which opens the door to identifying the thousands of species. Bring a copy of Newcomb's Wildflower Guide, Insect Repellent, and a Water Bottle. Register on the Indiana DNR website. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy, Linda Green, Sarah Vaughn, and Wes Martin. Today's feature was produced by Norm Holy. Kaylin Huffman Brower produced The Secret Life of Fungi. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Wes Martin engineered today's show. Andrew Brown, Kaylin Huffman Brower, and Sarah Vaughn edited the script. Executive producer is Wes Martin. Tune in on Thursdays at 11:30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, as well as in nature and secret life of fungi episodes anytime at wfhb.org. 
For WFHB, I'm Glenn Leitner. And I'm Linda Leitner. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. 